The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. <clears throat> this is from uh, Bhante Gunaratana, a Sri Lankan monk who's been here in the West for a long time, <clears throat> quite old. He started Bhavana Society in West Virginia. And this is his book on the Eightfold Path called Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. And he's writing about mindfulness of the mind here. He writes, You give each mental state total attention as it arises without doing anything specific about it and without allowing yourself to get involved or to follow the thought or feeling. You simply watch as each state or quality rises and falls. This rising and falling is the nature of the entire mind. Every moment, in fact, many times every moment, mind arises, reaches its peak, and passes away. It is the same for any mind of any being in the universe. The more you observe this rising and falling of all mental qualities, the more volatile you know them to be. Seeing this volatility, you gain insight into the impermanent phenomenon called mind. Thus, the more you focus on mind itself, the less solid it seems. Like everything else that exists, it is always changing. Moreover, you discover there is no permanent entity, no one running the movie projector. All is flux, all is flow, All is process. In reality, you are, who you are is simply the constant flow of changing moments of mind. Since you cannot control this process, you have no choice but to let go. And letting go, you experience joy. And you taste for an instant the freedom and happiness that is the goal of the the Buddha's path. Then you know that this mind can be used to gain wisdom. And this, uh, I think, is a a useful thing now, week four of our Mindfulness of Mind class. And even if it's something we take just initially on borrowed faith, but the source of suffering and the source of happiness is where? Right here. And part of the reason why life is often so frustrating is, you know, I think because of our animal nature, we, you know, as a sensitive being, an animal, we're oriented to the external. So we figure the problems and my salvation is out there in what we might call experience, sense experience. I'll figure it out, I'll find it, I'll get it, and then I'll be happy. And when we're not, it's because of that. And we don't really have much fluency and even much interest in looking inward. And therefore we get this endless samsara. And I'm sure some of you know, the Buddha talks about the 
endlessness of samsara in pretty graphic ways, how inconceivable it is, the beginning of this whole mass of suffering. Beings like you and me, <clears throat> suffering, not wanting to be suffering, wanting to be free from suffering, but doing exactly what perpetuates suffering. Right? That's what samsara is. And it's really related to this arrogant presumption that the problem has to do with the external experience. And I'd even put my mind out there too in a funny way. It's like, oh yeah, this aspect of my personality, or this thing with my body. So even my personality, what's going on in my body, that gets in a sense externalized. We don't really look within the mind that's knowing. The Buddha says, <clears throat> There is one thing, O practitioners, the not seeing of which keeps you bound, unfree. What is this one thing that you are not seeing? It is suffering, or suffering in the end of suffering. And the Buddha's pointing out instructions say, Know, it's it's our gift or the gift from the Buddha the legacy we get from being fortunate to connect with these teachings is it's here the source of freedom release or the experience of release the experience of suffering it's all here it's happening right here and it doesn't matter if we've missed it or haven't been interested it's, in a way, it's waiting for us to be interested. <clears throat> many of you have heard this many times, but it's worth repeating this beginning of this uh, ancient collect collection of Buddhist verses. From It's called the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon will follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. <clears throat> he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred ends through, hatred never ends through hatred. By not hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So this is our predicament, and um, starting next week, week five, week six, we'll look at the second part of this uh, Satipatthana, mindfulness of mind, where the Buddha is really talking about the, the development of samadhi. So the first part is just that basic fluency. Is this a mind with lust or without lust? 
Is this a mind with hate or anger or without it? A mind that's deluded, a mind that's not deluded. A mind that's contracted or heavy or dull. A mind that's restless or not. And isn't it amazing that, you know, that we don't actually say this, we're not really aware of this, but <clears throat> when we look back in hindsight, I mean the mind is all over the place all day long in these different you know, ways of relating. But the, the sort of unconscious presumption is, well of course I'm irritated because this is happening. Of course I'm happy because this is happening. Of course I'm dull, of course I'm restless, of course I'm distracted. So it, it never occurs to the mind to get interested in those colorings, let's say, or those filters, because it there's this presumption that when experience is this way, of course the mind is this way, is relating in this way. And <clears throat> you know, this inattention to the mind is what's truly remarkable. I think I read this week one from this Indian saint of the last century, uh, Nis Sargadatta, very well known, lived, I think, into the 70s, maybe even the 80s. Nothing is dense except the wall of inattention. Right, so that, you know, being trapped in our repeated cycles is only due to the lack of attention. It isn't like there's this soundproof or whatever wall that keeps us from observing or getting to know the mind. It's just that we're not inclined to look, to be interested. And I might have shared this quote too earlier in the course from Hannah, <clears throat> Hannah Moore. The ingenuity of self-deception is inexhaustible. You know, it's like that silly scene from the Wizard of Oz, you know, where the wizard is saying, don't look at that guy behind the curtain. You know, he's just, forget exactly what he says, but you know, it's not important. Pay no attention to that guy. And it's a little bit like that, you know, hey, this is what's, don't, you don't need to look, you don't need to be interested. And I was sort of expecting, you know, after the sit and I asked, does anybody have any questions about the meditation instruction? You know, it's sort of, and, and I'd, I'd recommend in your small groups to really share a little bit about what is that experience for you of trying, doing your best to get interested in the mind? What gets in the way? What seems helpful? And especially like you might, you might notice that it, there's some uh, deflection, like <clears throat> it seems like there's a, a sincere interest to know the mind, but it's like something gets deflected off, not easy to rest there or to sustain that interest. But that's sort of 
Interesting, isn't it? And just to observe that world-creating aspect, reality-creating aspect of the mind. We can observe it in others, you know, like those of you who've had children and how they can manufacture this uh, wonderful playland of some fantasy or some game, right? It's just this whole world, and it might be they're just playing with a rock, but it's a special rock or whatever. And the same thing they can, kids, I mean it's not just kids of course, can completely manufacture a hell realm for themselves. You know, mommy doesn't like me anymore, mommy won't let me do what I want to do or whatever, and, uh, and really feel tortured by life. So this is, you know, we, you know, just to be interested now, like what, how's the mind now? And as I mentioned in the guided sit, to make a particular, and, and again, to talk about this in the small groups perhaps when it's your turn, but like how not inclined we are to notice, it's relatively easy to notice when there's a lot of greed, but it's definitely harder to notice when there's a mind without greed, or a mind without hate, or a mind that's not deluded. And uh, in the chapter in Venerable Analio's book, you know, it's kind of the main text I've been reminding folks. Um, you might want to get a copy, either the digital or this, because it's just a great reference. Satipatthana Meditation, a Practice Guide. And of course he has a chapter on mindfulness of the mind and uh, one of the four Satipatthanas, the teachings on mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mind objects or dhammas, which we'll be studying in the fall. And for those folks who haven't been doing these courses, the body was the winter course, feeling tone was the spring course, now in the summer we're doing mindfulness of mind, those classes are up on our YouTube channel, so you can listen. And this is the comprehensive training and teachings from the Buddha on how to establish mindfulness, which is the, liber the liberating path. <clears throat> and for each of these four Satipatthanas, there is this basic description. And this is, you know, this is what allows us, even something as subtle and slippery, ephemeral, hard to really see as a natural phenomenon, as the mind is. But with mindfulness we really can. So he defines it, it's sort of the definition of what we need to be mindful of the mind. We need diligence, clearly knowing, mindful, freedom from desire and discontent. Right? So to observe the mind, we need to be diligent. Right? That sort of bright interest. Can't, can't be holding back or trying to do three things at once. 
we really have to be sincerely interested in the mind. That's the diligence piece. And the clearly knowing is more about comprehend, comprehending it. <clears throat> and in Buddhist terms, when we're comprehending something, we're seeing its underlying nature. It's changing, it's unsatisfactory, it's impersonal nature. So for us, like when we're observing the mind, it means, of course, we have ideas about the mind like, that's me, <laughs> you know, I'm the mind, that's me, that's why it's not our habit to look at it. Why would I have to look at me? You know, that's, that's sort of one of the defensive maneuvers, you know. I already know who I am, I already know how I feel, of course I know my mind, right? But do we? So uh, that clearly knowing means, you know, it really has that sense of humility. Like I just, I want to see the mind as a natural phenomena, not in terms of what I think, or what I've been programmed to think about my mind or the mind, but to observe it in the subjective sense. And that's key, it's like, uh, you know, one of the things we, I should have said right at the beginning of the course, it's like, what you think the mind is has really no value for this course. Because it isn't about what we think, it's about what can be directly <clears throat> observed when the mind is diligent, clearly knowing. Mindfulness here in a more technical sense means this moment-to-moment -moment tracking. Or another way Mindfulness, its more technical definition is keeping the mind in mind, or not forgetting it, right? Like, this, this is a good technical definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness is that part of the mind that knows what's relevant, like in the scope of the present moment, knows what's relevant to keep in mind. So that's one of the aspects of mindfulness, it knows what's relevant. We could be sitting here through the whole course, those of you online can't see Charlie's lime green sh shirt, but it's sort of like maybe that color just gets our attention and we keep it in mind. Oh, lime green, looks like this. But that's not a very useful thing to keep in mind. Like keeping that color in mind won't lead this mind to see what it needs to see in terms of the causes for suffering and the causes for release. But keeping in mind how my mind is relating, what filters are governing the mind and its perceptions, whether the mind is settled or not, and what are the consequences when the mind is settled what does that allow? What does that set of motion? When the mind is distracted, what does that allow and set of motion? That's something relevant to keep in mind. So there are a lot of aspects of the present moment that you know aren't aren't really that relevant in terms of learning about what we really want to learn about suffering and the end of suffering. So that's right at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness. The Buddha defines 
this sort of practice of mindfulness has this diligence, <clears throat> bright, all in, I'm interested. And that clearly knowing, this comprehending, seeing the under, you know, curious about the underlying nature and this aspect of mindfulness of remembering what's the most relevant thing to keep in mind here. And this last piece, freedom from desire and discontent, gets picked up in this refrain. I don't know if people remember, but for each uh, reflection or meditation practice, and there are a number of them, depending on um, how you understand this sutta, but like at least seven instructions, um, like in the mindfulness of the body, there's the 32 body parts and the using the elements and using the corpse meditation as a way to clarify our understanding of mindfulness of body. So that's three right there. So for each of these instructions that the Buddha gives, he has this refrain, and I'll just read it here. So you can think of it with each of the different categories of practice, whether it's body or feeling tone or mindfulness of the mind. I'll do it in terms of mindfulness of the mind. In regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind internally or externally or both internally and externally. So that's one piece of the refrain. The second piece, or one abides contemplating the nature of arising in the mind or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the mind, or one abides contemplating both arising and passing in the mind. That's the second piece. And the third piece, or mindfulness that there is a mind is established in one just for the sake of bare knowing and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. Right, so in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind, internally and externally. That's the keeping it in mind. We're doing, like for these six weeks, when you're sitting, whenever you remember during your daily life, there's a mind. There's a mind internally, externally, right? We can learn, I mean, indirectly, all the minds. Mind. I mean, just imagine, you know, because, you know, as a sexual being, you know, we often go through our day sort of noticing attractiveness and the absence of attractiveness, you know, or as a social being, you know, trustworthy person or not so trustworthy person. Person I'd like to get to know, person I don't want to get to know. Person I want to impress, person I don't want to impress. But imagine if we went through the day, all day long, formal time when we're sitting, informal time the rest of the day, and, oh yeah, minds. Here a mind, there a mind, everywhere a mind, mind. <laughs> I mean, we, will, we would have learned a thing or two. And that the thing about the mind, the most relevant thing about the mind, is the rising and passing. Grumpy mind, 
Oh, grumpy mind's gone. Happy mind. Oh, happy mind's gone. Dull mind. Clear mind. Restless mind. And just, and the same thing with your partner and the other people around, you know, indirectly, not directly, just the sense, oh, it's a different gym. You know, when I saw a gym coming in, it was that gym. This is a different mind. Rising, passing, rising, passing. It's not just one gem or one mark or one glory. It's, they're, they're just mind moments, <laughs> you know, rising and passing. And that's really powerful to observe. And then the last piece again, or mindfulness that there is a mind is established in one just for the sake of their knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So we're not even trying to figure anything out or see things. We're just, like the, the practice here, in the most subtle way, in the most transforming way, is just to be free with mind. And one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. Oh yeah, the mind's this way, the mind's that way, your mind's this way, your mind's that way. What does freedom look like when there's just a bunch of minds doing what the bunch of minds do? So this is a little bit more from... Uh, <clears throat> that chapter um, in Venerable Analio, this German monk's book. And he's talking about this homework that I'd like to encourage for this next few weeks in our practice to put more emphasis on recognizing the absence of greed and lust. So a mind that's generous, a mind that's content, a mind that can let go, not stingy, and noticing the mind without anger or aversion or fear or anxiety, all the different forms of aversion. Like we could have a contest. You know, how many mind moments between now and next Monday can we notice the mind free of aversion or free of greed or free of delusion? or free of contraction, dullness, or free of restlessness or distractedness. Because the point that Venerable Analio makes here is like it, it's really important to create the feedback loop that builds our practice. It's really getting this taste of freedom when the defilements are less Oppressive, these habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. Let me just read a little of this. <clears throat> and this, you know, you might have already done this homework, so this could be something you share in a small group, like just the moment you remember, maybe you're just taking a walk, and the momentum of your practice, you had the wherewithal just to notice this is a mind free of greed. This is a mind free of hate. This is a mind free of delusion. 
Now, it doesn't mean you said those words silently in your mind, but it was just a moment of recognition of the purity of the mind. Purity in the sense of this mind isn't stained by greed, hatred, and delusion. It doesn't have too little energy and it doesn't have too much energy. This is a mind that's beautiful. This is a mind that has the flavor of freedom because it's not oppressed by these oppressive qualities. And Venerable Analio, he writes here um, in the chapter on mindfulness of mind, rejoicing in the absence of defilements is a powerful tool that will make us swift, that will make for swift progress on the path to permanent freedom from defilements. This does not mean turning a blind eye to defilements. These should be honestly recognized, but ideally without aversion. It is possible to realize that a defilement in the mind, uh, and it is possible to realize that a defilement is in the mind and smile. We smile at the tendency of the mind to do the opposite of what we want to do. We smile in the knowledge that we are walking a gradual path and that it would be unreasonable to expect that as soon as we sit down to meditate, the mind just does what we want it to. And then a little later, intentionally arousing joy when realizing the mind is temporarily free will go a long way in strengthening the tendency of the mind to remain in the realm of what is wholesome. It also serves to provide inspiration for the practice Inspiration for the practice. Seems like I'm missing a word here. It will make meditation so much more attractive and turn it into something that we look forward to instead of being something done out of a sense of obligation. Moreover, it also offers a foretaste of the final goal. The final goal is purification of the mind from all defilements. Instead of remaining an abstract concept, through recognition of the pleasant condition of the mind that is temporarily free of the defilements, we can have a direct experience of the aim of our practice. And I think that's just generally an essential pointing out instruction for us, those of us who are interested in the Buddhist teaching, teachings that a lot of the progress you know, like waking up, is a realization not so much of what's here and now, but what's gone. Oh, neurotic, oppressive tendency uh, tendencies of the mind are gone. Because we don't make a, you know, the peace that we talk about is really the peace that arises when something that here is here is gone. And I, I know a lot of you know this, but Nibbana, freedom, is really pragmatically defined in the Buddhist text as the cessation of craving. Craving is gone. Or as um, Achan Chah talks about, you know, the, the experience of awakening as realizing this heart free of grasping. What is the heart that's free from grasping? 
We just have a few minutes left before we need to break into groups. And let me just share this uh, uh, sutta. And I sent this in the weekly email. Maybe I'll just mention in the email that I sent this afternoon to everybody, I put the link for Venable Analio, this German monk who is now mostly in residence at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in the middle of Massachusetts. And uh, by the way, he does an online course on the Satipatthana. That's really wonderful if anybody wants to dig into these teachings a little bit more deeply. And uh, he also provides guided meditations on all the different aspects of the Satipatthana, including mindfulness of mind. So I put the link for the guided meditation on mindfulness of mind. So I strongly encourage people to do it at least once between now and next Monday, if not every day. Um, and then the other thing I linked to there is the sutta from the Middle Link Discourses, Two Sorts of Thinking. And this one uh, is translated by Tanasaro Bhikkhu, a, a Western monk who's an abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego and a wonderful Buddhist scholar and meditation teacher. Before my self-awakening, when I was just an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on their way to awakening, this is the Buddha speaking, the thought occurred to me. And this is great. So now the Buddha is talking about at the time before he was fully awakened, fully wise, right? A practitioner like you and me, probably better skills. <laughs> but still, on his way, and he's giving an example like how he found his way. So the thought occurred to me, why don't I keep dividing my thinking into two sorts? Right, so he's observing his thinking, he's going, maybe I should divide my thinking into two sorts. So I made thinking imbued with lust or greed, thinking imbued with ill will or hate, and thinking imbued with harmfulness, like that absence of sensitivity or valuing not harming, one sort. You could probably guess, the unskillful sort, right? So we have greed, hatred, and uh, the willingness to cause harm, thoughts that are infected or tainted with these qualities, I put in this category. And instead of greed, thoughts of renunciation, instead of hate, thoughts of kindness, instead of a willingness to harm, a deep valuing of non-harming or compassion, any thoughts that are colored by these wholesome qualities, I'll put in another category. And so he's really pragmatic. I'm going to study my mind, and I'm going to just, in a relaxed, non-judging way, oh yeah, unskillful, oh yeah, skillful, oh yeah, there's greed here, unskillful, setting emotion, stress. There's non-greed here, setting emotion, release. As I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking imbued with lust arose in me. I discerned that thinking imbued with lust has arisen in me, and that it leads to my own affliction, or the affliction of others, or the affliction of both. Now that's not theoretical, he's just observing. Oh yeah, there's lust, and to the degree the mind is identified with the lust, it leads to my affliction and the affliction of others. Any kind of greed, right? We can directly observe that. 
It obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, and does not lead to freedom, to unbinding. <clears throat> and then he says the same thing. Uh, oh, first, there's another piece here. As I notice that it does not lead to my own affliction, it subsided. As I notice that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. That's powerful, isn't it? It's not about stopping ourselves from being greedy. It's about seeing it for what it is. Oh yeah, it leads to my affliction. And when I comprehend that greed causes me and others tension, suffering, it subsides. And he says the same thing about hate and the same thing about harmfulness. And then he, he does the same practice with skillful qualities. As I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking imbued with renunciation, with non-ill will or kindness, with harmlessness or compassion, arose in me, I discern that this skillful quality has arisen in me and that it leads neither to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or both. It fosters discernment promotes lack of vexation and leads to unbinding. If I were to think and ponder in line with that, even for a night, even for a day, even for a day and night, I do not envision any danger that would come from it, except it might be a little exhausting to be, you know, with wholesome thoughts for a long period of time. But otherwise, not a problem. And he just gives that example. And so this is something you can share in the small groups tonight, either here in the building or online with Dave in just a moment. And really think of these small groups as sacred spaces where we talk about, oh yeah, I was observing greed. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful thing to have a small group where we can be real with each other. Oh yeah, there's hate, there's aversion, there's fear, there's greed, there's lust. There's delusion, denial. It's so nice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.